0: Good morning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on a sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed nor shall they drink water. Humans and animals shall be covered with sackcloth and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is near their hands. Who knows, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw that they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thoughts on Jonah 3? Like, we're three chapters into a four-chapter book, so anyone have thoughts on uh, what's going on here? There's a, there's a bit in it. Sorry, I'm going to get set up here. Vicki. Vicki said she finds it interesting that uh, they said they believed God and not Jonah in that passage. A little bit interesting. Any other thoughts? Renee. Renee says she finds it interesting that the text says that God changed their mind. And uh, she's, yeah, any other thoughts? Comments, questions, or my favorite heresies? Doesn't it say also that God changed his mind? Uh, not in Jonah 3. Um, Holly's wondering if the text also says that God changed Jonah's mind. God changed God's mind. Okay. Yes, God changed His mind, and at the end of. Anyway, good comments. Uh, Anything else? All right. Well, three chapters in. Let's kind of do a bit of a recap to figure out where we've been up to this point. So, chapter one. God says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah, Jonah says, nope, pass. I'm not going to go do that. Uh, I'm going to talk to you in the opposite direction. So he books it to Tarshish, uh, or attempts to. And in the middle of going there and rejecting the literal call from God, um, God sends a storm. And what does Jonah do? Jonah doesn't say, no, 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 I'm going to, OK, now, God, you got me. I'll go back to Nineveh and do your thing. No, he just says, hey, um, the storm is because of me and y'all on the boat should throw me overboard, and once you throw me overboard, the storm will stop. It's like, okay, that, that seems like a, a bit of an extreme maneuver to just literally throw yourself into the sea to still not go to Nineveh, but whatever. And then God has him solved by a fish. Cool, and then in chapter two, three days into the whole endeavor of being inside of a fish, Jonah finally prays and says, and relents, to God and says, okay, fine, I'll go do it in uh, verses seven through nine in chapter two, that he will sacrifice to God and vow that he will carry through on the thing that God told him to do. So, basic recap, God says go do, Jonas says no. God sends a storm, Jonas still says no, throws himself overboard into the sea hoping to probably die, maybe? I don't know, that seems like a bit harsh. Uh, And then finally, once he's been inside of a fish says, I don't know about you, I don't know that it'd be super fun being inside of a fish for three days. Uh says, all right, fine, I'll go do the thing. And then the fish bits him up. That's where we start chapter three. So we start chapter three after all those events have happened, probably over months at this point, because uh, it's not a quick journey to go from his home city to Tarshish and then back to Nineveh. Uh, commentators, I said, probably about a month from the time he hit the shore to Nineveh itself. So he's been on a wild ride for a decent amount of time by the time we get to chapter three. um, While I was rereading Jonah for this time, something that struck me was just how incredibly selfish Jonah is in this book. Like, to the point where he's ignoring the literal call of Gaul, Gaul? Yeah, literal call of God. Not trying to make a new name here, just, you know, (laughs) slip of the tongue, teeth are still weird, I'll blame it on that. Um, Ignores the literal call of God, um, just so he won't have to deal with people he doesn't like. And he only relents when he's given no other option than to go and perform the task that's been requested of him. And then once he does, he does like the bare minimum thing. Uh, see, as I was reading this and thinking about it, you know what it reminds me of? And most of the people in this room have either been at this stage or know someone currently going through this stage. It reminds me of a teenager, you know? Like, you're a teen, you're rebellious, your parents tell you to do X, Y, or Z, and you're like, nah, I don't wanna do it. And they tell you again, you're like, nah, I still don't wanna do it, and then finally they bring the hammer down, and you go do it, and you do it like the bare minimum way you can just to get the task done. That's what this, that's what it reminds me of here, Jonah. Like, he's doing the bare minimum to get the task done because he's being a selfish teenager, although he's probably in his like 40s or something, <laughs> who knows. Uh, but that's really the, the vibe I'm getting from Jonah right now. He's just, he's a rebellious teenager, just not wanting to do what he's told to do. Uh, and when he gets to there, as the text says, he's, he literally says, for 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all the text tells us, he says. Nothing else. Nothing more, nothing less. Just, hey, in 40 days you're going to be overthrown. That's some great preaching, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about you. That's, that might be the best sermon ever if it the if the Ninevites repented not not repented if Ninevites change their ways so drastically from eight words that's, a, that's an amazing sermon i don't know i don't know that i've ever heard a sermon that good in like all the years there's no call to repentance there's no pleading to god on behalf of the city like we see from other the other prophets just one sentence is all we are told, that Jonah explicitly said to the people of Nineveh. Now, like some commentators will say, surely he must have said more, because he's been in a fish for three days. He's gonna probably be super pasty white. Some people are gonna probably ask him like, why are you so white, why? what's going on with your skin? And sure, he probably re- commented on that, but as far as the text is concerned, his obligation to warn the Ninevites comes down to those eight words. That's it. So regardless of whether he commented on his appearance or commented on something else in the city, the text only tells us of those eight words. Uh, Something else the text tells us is uh, the size of the city. It's one of those numbers that kind of pops up for me in this book, and I'll get to that in a bit, um, Nineveh, at the time, was a great city with at least four times the population of Samaria, the capital of Israel, so about 120,000 people. Um, the Hebrew calls it a distance of three days, referring to its suburbs as well as the walled central city. So when the text says it took him three days across, a lot of commenters say, well, not the actual city of Nineveh, but like the city and the surrounding little suburbs. Uh, so put it into context, probably about the size of maybe Peoria-ish. Because, I mean, that's, that's our population size superior proper, um, but like distance wise, probably the same. It takes three days to walk across it and do all that. And he's just saying the same thing over and over again, just these eight words, 40 days more in Nineveh and you shall be overthrown. Such a great preacher, my goodness. <laughs> um, so when we look at any story of the Bible, we kind of have to keep in mind the original audience of the books and how they would have interacted with it. Um, the vast majority of people who would have interacted with this at the time, and up until about the 18th century, only interacted with this via oral traditions. So it's not like you, had, you could go at home as a young Jewish boy and whip out your scroll of the book of Jonah and just read it on your own leisure. You only interacted with these texts when the rabbi taught it or when um, your rabbinic school told, taught you about it. Most of it was passed down through oral tradition or you had it memorized. So when we read Jonah, unless we are deeply versed in the preceding stories that come before it, we don't immediately think of any of the preceding text. So a lot of, this, a lot of the historical context and the original audience would have had things like the Psalms in their head, they would have had the other prophets in mind, they would have had the Torah, or, or the sorry, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, just in their heads constantly of this is the context, this is their shared history, this is their shared knowledge of what's going on. So outside of being super selfish in this book, something else that stuck out to me this time was the numbers. There's a couple of numbers repeated throughout the book of Jonah. Uh, One is 40, the other is 3. So on 40 days, pop quiz, can anyone think about uh, any other significant events in the Old Testament that correspond with the number 40? Noah, okay. The desert, look at that. Wait, that's New Testament, though. Oh, sorry, no, you mean, the other, you mean the other 40 years. The 40 years, yes, Israel. Sorry, there's, there's two deserts things in my head at the moment of 40. Um, anything else? Moses on the mountain. That's one I actually didn't think of, but thank you, Vicki. So yeah, I did think of like 40, the number 40 in regards to the 40 days and 40 nights for the flood of Noah and 40 years in the desert wandering through Israel. And as Vicki just pointed out, 40 days that Moses spent on Mount Sinai, getting the speaking with and meeting with God. 40 is an important number in the historical context. Uh, 40 days was a grace period. Often in scripture, 40 is used for a period of waiting and testing. Though the oral word made no mention of the possibility of reprieve, the Ninevites realized that they were being given an opportunity to repent. If God was irrevocably determined to destroy their city, why would he send a messenger to warn them? Uh, as my text is not, oh, Jane Smith in the New Minor Prophet says. So the number 40 was already primed in their heads to say, this is, oh, this is obviously a testing period for us. Because 40 years in the desert, there's lots of testing, and lots of things happening to the Israelite people. Uh, 40 days for the flood, God destroyed the world, and then we had to wait 40 days to get the new, to get it back. So that number, super primed in the, People who would have heard it. And the Ninevites, they weren't Jewish, so they don't have the entire history down. But I have to imagine that being in the same area as Israel, they would have picked up on these cultural tidbits. And these the flood story probably would have made its way around them. The 40 years in the desert wandering definitely that would have been made around because that was a major thing for the nation of Israel. So they would have known these and it would have had these numbers primed in their head. So that's number one. Number two, three. We see the numbers three and 40 repeated constantly throughout not only the book, but in chapter three alone. Three is mentioned, I think, three times, actually. Uh, Now I don't think a lot of things with the number three in the Old Testament, but moving forward to the New Testament, there's some very significant inferences that we know of today for the number three first one uh, death and resurrection, resurrection. Huh? holy ghost yes uh, we the trinity we know the trinity um, any other things i probably already said i already said one but trinity that's one that came into my head did you say resurrection yes i did so death and resurrection so we have the burial for 3 days how many days was paul blind i don't know <laughs> how many what? days was paul blind I don't ignore Paul. I just don't keep a lot of facts about him in my head. That's fair. <laughs> Jonah was in the fish three days. Yeah, Jonah was in the fish for three days. Um, three wise men. Three wise men, there we go. That's, that's yeah. another one. Three times he denied Jesus. Peter, three times he denied Jesus. See, you're all thinking of things I didn't think of, which is great. I'm not thinking about this a lot, sort of. Um, so yeah, but all those are New Testament references. I don't, I couldn't think while, While I was thinking of this, I couldn't think of anything in the Old Testament specifically relating to the number three. Uh, But three shows up quite a bit. And so much so that Jonah is one of only four prophets that Christ himself references in the New Testament. He does it technically in both Matthew and Luke, but it's just the same story. Um, Where'd it go? Uh, Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah, no, that's not wrong. That's the wrong one. Uh, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will be the Son of Man to this generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it, for they repented of the, at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Uh, that's Matthew 12, 39 through 42, and Luke 11, 29 through 32. Basically the same thing with a little bit of minor things. So Jonah is very important in the New Testament context. And again, it gets back to that whole... Context being primed for the people who would have heard this story at the time, and context being primed for people in the time of Jesus knowing the story of Jonah as it had passed centuries before. As I was always taught in my studies, context is king. So the context of a story always drastically matters. Um, So with these kind of references in mind, we can form an idea of not only how the original audience of the book of Jonah would have understood the text, but we can also kind of piece together a little bit of how the Ninevites themselves would have responded to it. So the crux of chapter 3 is really not so much that Jonah went and finally did the thing, but that the Ninevites repented of their sinful ways and turned holistically to God. Um, It's actually looking at the text up there, and I, I didn't catch it when I was doing my own study, but this book is actually called The Conversion of the Ninevites which I find is interesting because the text doesn't tell us that they converted, only that they repented. That's two completely separate things in my book, so I don't know why it's called the conversion when it says, because there's no mention of that. But anyway, um, why would Nineveh respond so drastically? Because I mentioned only eight words, only eight words of a sermon. How do you convert so drastically in eight words to repent of your entire ways? Uh, The Ninevites were had already been prepared um, for the prophet Jonah's message. Assyria was led by weak rulers between 782 BC and 745, immediately around the time that this is happening. And they were threatened from the mountain by tribes from the north who had driven their frontiers within 100 miles of the capital. The danger of destruction was very real in Nineveh in this period. So Jonah coming and say, a messenger from God on high, a messenger from Yahweh saying, in 40 days you will be overthrown, It's not just a, he was such a good preacher. It's a, oh, he's letting us know about the Assyrians coming, and he's letting us know about these tribes from the north that are going to possibly be destroying us. So when Jonah comes in, it's just basically more of a catalyst than anything else. It's not because Jonah's such a good preacher. It's because he's, he's shedding some light on cultural events that are happening to them at the time that has caused them to move so drastically toward them. And so on that conversion bit real quick, um, it's interesting that in the Hebrew, there's, there's multiple words for the name of God in Hebrew. So fun little Bible thing, if you are reading the Old Testament and you see the Lord in all capital, capital letters, that actually means Yahweh. So YHWH, they didn't want to actually write the name of God, so they used that as a quick shorthand to reference God, the, to reference God in the Old Testament. That is a revelatory name for God. It's a very near and dear term that the Israelites used for God himself. So Yahweh, he is a revelatory God. The word that the king uses here in chapters three is not that word. He doesn't use Yahweh in the original text, or that's not what we're told he uses. He uses Elohim. Um, The name Elohim is used in this passage, not the personal revelatory name of God. So we should not conclude that the people of Nineveh experienced genuine conversion. God has compassion to those who do not know him, but do what is right, even as he has his own people. So I I find it super odd that the text labeled this as a conversion, when even the language itself doesn't indicate that really this was a conversion from the Ninevites. they just responded positively to the message of God. And they called him Elohim to show reverence to him, but not the revealed God himself if I'm making sense. So, anyway, and as kind of Renee and Holly both pointed out, after they do that, God changes his mind, which we do see occasionally in the Old Testament, and decides not to destroy Nineveh because they have repented their evil ways. Okay, so getting to a point of some sort, because I've been over the place. Based on the text, Jonah doesn't appear to be proselytizing. He appears to be plainly stating, you're all going to die in 40 days. Like, that's, that's really what those eight words tell me. Is like, he's not out there trying to convert people to Judaism. He's not out there trying to really even, quote, unquote, save people. He's delivering a message. That's all Jonah is doing here in this book. By the time we get to chapter 3, that's it. it again, he's that selfish teenager just doing the bare minimum. He's just saying, you're all going to die in 40 days. There you go. But the Nineveh just responded positively. So what do they do with that? Um, and really, what it, if that's not the point, Like, the point is not Jonah going and converting these people. What really is the point of Jonah? Because all this happens super quickly in the span of three days. Um, one of the commentators, John Hannah from the book uh, The Bible Knowledge Commentary, kind of lays out four things that kind of how the original readers would have interpreted Jonah at the time, and I, I really like it, so I'm just gonna kind of read his passage here for you, just so you can get context of how the audience of Jonah would have understood that book. Uh, first, one apparent message to Israel, because that, con- that would have been the hearers of this and who this book was written for, is God's concern for Gentile peoples. The Lord's love for the souls of all people was supposed to be mediated through Israel, God's elect and covenant nation. Through Israel, the blessing of his compassion was to be preached to the nations. The book of Jonah was a reminder to Israel of her missionary purpose. So one, the book is a reminder that you're supposed to be loving and caring for other nations, not just yourself. You're supposed to be my light in the world. You're not being that. So secondly, the book demonstrates the sovereignty of God in accomplishing his purposes. Though Israel was unfaithful in its missionary task, God was faithful in causing his love to be proclaimed. In praise to God for miraculously delivering him, Jonah confessed, salvation or deliverance comes from the Lord. Israel failed to proclaim God's mercies, but his work gets done in spite of human weaknesses and imperfection. So again, Jonah did the bare minimum, but God still chose to do what God wants to do. He still chose to save the Ninevites because they did actually repent of their ways, and they did turn to him. So just we don't, Jonah didn't have to do the proselytizing, it just happened. Third, the response of the Gentiles served as a message of rebuke to God's sinful nation, Israel. Uh, the spiritual insight of the mariners and their concern for the Jewish prophet contrasts starkly with Israel's lack of concern for the Gentile nations. Jonah's spiritual hardness illustrated and rebuked Israel's callousness Nineveh's repentance contrasted sharply with Israel's rejection of the warnings of Jonah's contemporaries, Hosea and Amos. And fourth, Jonah was a symbol to Israel of her disobedience to God and indifference to the religious plight of other nations. Hosea, Jonah's contemporary, graphically portrayed the unending love of God for his people. Um, Similarly, Jonah symbolized Israel by his disobedience and disaffection. God's punishment of Jonah shows his wrath on Israel Yet the Lord's gentle, miraculous dealings with Jonah also picture his tender love and slowness of anger with the nation. As Jonah wrote the book from a repentant heart, God desired that the nation would heed the lesson Jonah learned and repent as Jonah and Nineveh had done. And I'm realizing now that the next bit I wrote probably should have gone before that, but oh well, here we are. Um, So as Melinda kind of mentioned two weeks ago when we were starting Jonah, there's really a couple of ways to view not only the book of Jonah, but most of the books of the Bible. Um, One is to take it purely as as historical fact, and take the story at face value, that Jonah did indeed receive a call, that he did indeed get fact by a large fish, and that the Ninevites did immediately repent of their sinful ways. So we can take it as all those things literally happened as they are written in the book of Jonah. Or you can take the pendulum to the exact opposite way and say that the, the book is purely an allegory, that nothing in the book literally happened, and that the entire story is nothing more than a teaching tool for Israel. I would lean and land somewhere in between those two. Um, so we know that Jonah was a historical person and that the city of Nineveh did in fact exist. My take is that Jonah did a message to the did say a message to the Ninevites, but the fish bits uh, and the sudden repentance maybe are left to the allegorical side. I don't know. I don't know where that his, sits for me. But my take is that's kind of a mix of it's both ends. So yes, I believe that Jonah probably did go to Nineveh and preach his eight-word message. Uh, but, if it wasn't immediate in those three days that the entire city repented and, or that he was swallowed by a fish, cool. Um, there is a bit leaning towards the historical bit. Apparently, there was a man in the 1840s who was swallowed by a whale and survived in there for a few days. So like it it can happen apparently. Random side note.. Uh, It's super fun, it's great. Who doesn't wanna get swallowed by a whale and then turn paisley white for the rest of your life? Because apparently that's what happened. Um, I have read Jonah, I I don't know how many times over the years, uh, both for personal study and for papers I have written in my undergraduate and graduate careers. Um, Yet, as I read through Jonah for this series, my mind has shifted and focused on a new piece of the text that I didn't even rack to in my 20s. One was the selfishness, one was the numbers. but the other was kind of what I've been talking about. Jonah didn't really go in with the repent and convert or else. Like he didn't do the fire and brimstone. He didn't do the whole like you need to you need to turn yourself to God. He didn't do any of that. Yet the nativeites did. They did turn. Uh, so some of you may have read my Wago Weekly. I just posted this past week. If you Don't know that we have a weekly thing where we have some people from the congregation Right? We have Maga Weekly, which you can find on the website or Facebook or places. It's a newsletter, it's an email, Um, you can find it. It's a great time, sign up for it. So I'm gonna read a bit of that that I've kind of reshaped for this morning. So if you've already read it, you're gonna hear some of it again. Um, As modern readers, when we hear the story of Jonah and hear how the Ninevites immediately repented of their ways, I think in some ways our minds tend to drift toward conversion. It has been so driven into us as modern American Christians that the point of sharing God in Christ is to convert people to Christianity. Sure, there's a loving people bit, but it's kind of always in the background that you should invite them to church so they can become Christians, because that's the end goal. And in a lot of churches, that's made oh so clear when it comes to the time after the sermon, when the preacher says something to the effect of, uh, and now as we come to our time of commitment, I want to encourage any of you who are feeling God in this moment to come forward and dedicate your life to Christ today basically the altar call. Uh, I think the altar call is ridiculous and unnecessary for so, so many reasons, but primarily because uh, it presupposes two things about the purpose of Sunday morning gatherings that are detrimental to the service as a whole. One, it assumes that the only point of Sunday is to convert people to Christianity, and two, it requires no accountability on either the church or the one coming forward to grow in their faith. I do believe there's a call from God to us to reach out and seek those who are not believers, but I don't believe that it has to come with strings or always with the literal call to repentance. So many times the book of Jonah is used as that basis of saying, look, Jonah went and preached. Look, Jonah went and finally listened to God and preached the, new, the word of God to the Ninevites, and they converted I don't think they converted. I think they repented, for sure. I think they said, oh, the things that we're doing are causing us great detriment. Let us repent and turn to God. But again, there's no, there's no mention of conversion to Judaism in here. So I don't, I don't think that's the point. And yet, so many times when we hear Jonah, we hear Jonah converted the Ninevites to Judaism. In the back of the, the preacher's head, they always think, Christianity, but you know that didn't exist at the time. So at this point in my life, I'm a firm believer that there does not have to be an explicit call to repentance or a literal altar call for someone to decide to become a Christian. Reflection, conversion, and merely being in the presence of a believing community can achieve this better than a simple call to do, or can do. The call to follow Christ, to become a believer, or whatever language you want to use for this process, it's not a one-and-done moment that can merely be completed by responding to an altar call. It is a lifelong commitment that one continually reaffirms throughout their lives through fellowship in the community of believers and continual participation in the act of communion. Like that's the piece for me that's missing here in Jonah is they repent. And we we find out in the New Testament that possibly they stayed repentant for longer, but there's no clear indication in the book of Jonah that they stayed repentant for centuries. This was a moment in their times where they repented because they knew calamity was coming and they realized that crying out to God was a way to prevent that for them. But we still try and use that, the book of Jonah as a moment of saying, repent and be baptized therefore in the name of Christ. We still try and make it that, like it, you have to be, mm, sorry. Just thinking of the language irritates me a bit because I don't, I don't like it at all. <laughs> so, these altar calls, or these call to repentance, these gloom and doom of in 40 days you shall be overthrown sort of mentality. It, it, it's not a magical moment that makes someone a believer. This moment in Jonah where the Ninevites and the king of Nineveh repented so drastically didn't immediately make them believers. These moments are nothing more than that, they are a moment. But it can help us to lead, start a process that Eugene Peterson um, titled a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Phrase I absolutely love, by the way. Um, And that one for us, in our current context, is one focused on Christ. Uh, The point that John Hanna, the big text I read earlier, made about how Israel is supposed to show the Lord's love for the souls of all people being mediated through Israel still applies to us. We have the call of Christ to be the hands and feet of God, to go and do good deeds in the Trinity's name. Jonah forgot that. Israel forgot that. Jonah refused to be God's agent, and yet those he proclaimed the message to still turned to God. So what's it all about? Um, I don't have a good answer other than I think it's just we need to remember that we need to be the love of God on this earth, that sometimes, even in the worst ways, we can help to turn people, and we shouldn't turn away from God and turn away from loving others. It's one of the things I enjoy about Imago. We don't turn away people because of what they believe. We don't turn away people because of who they are. We try as best as we can to love them and fulfill that promise. Um, I'm gonna end with a quote here. So I was looking through some of the old quotes that I keep from books I've read in the past or just kind of topics I've heard. And really, I think this sums up Jonah quite well. It sums up um, the human condition even better a little bit, but it's from an author named John Caputo, um, from his book On Religion. And it's, it's basically this. It is no great feat after all to love the lovable to love our friends and those who t- tell us we are wonderful. But to love the unlovable, to love those who do not love us, to love our enemies, that is love.